Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and I must say this feels a bit like setting out to produce a historical document since we're in the first few days of the, the lockdown in relation to the coronavirus. And it's funny because obviously what that means is that everybody is needing to stay at home, or at least the vast majority of people uh, are either working from home or, or been sent home from work and so on. And it seems um, just so relevant really to things that uh, have been flagged up to me in, in recent months. Um, just about, you know, what really is most important and what, what really matters. And, um, I think I'm going to dig around a bit into that just, um, as the introduction to this week's podcast. Yeah. In fact, the theme home comes up quite a lot. Um, as I'm talking to Alice Fowler this week, Alice actually has a book called The Thrifty Forager, which, which having just looked it up again, um, I realize is also very applicable to the theme of home because she, she decided to write about what you can forage in your own garden and, in the hedgerows near near where you live rather than in far off coastal or forest locations, things like that. And, um, you know, as everybody's got to stay at home now, um, I think it's it's a great time for, for you to get to know what, what you have in the way of wild food in your immediate surroundings. Um, but of course, that is actually um, part of the solution to the the uh, conundrum that we find ourselves in globally and as a species right now. Um, in fact, the whole idea of, of not staying at home, not being at home, were it not for the fact that we have such a, um, a sort of movable global population with, with people traveling all across the earth and back again and um, uh, able to transfer a virus, uh, no doubt that the coronavirus thing would not be nearly as extreme um, as it is now. So that's one thing. And then obviously the fact that food is being moved from one place to another is a huge part of the issue of uh, global warming at the moment because the, the transportation of food is is um, a massive percentage of our global carbon footprint. So just to, just to look at the idea of home is actually it's actually quite um, quite a big topic and a big theme for me. I'm working and reworking some ideas that that all centre around the idea. Um, well, you could say of home, and you could also say what it means to inhabit or or dwell in a place. And of course, the first place that we dwell or inhabit is our own bodies, and that's a huge part of the problem that we face at the moment. is is the extent to which people don't really inhabit or indwell their own their own bodies and suffer from a thing that's been referred to as dissociation. So uh, you're kind of in your body, but you're not in your body. So you're locked into kind of thought processes and, and emotional states which which make you very much not present well that's a that's a that's a disease of of modern life at least far more of a daily experience for people than than it would have been in traditional societies where people were much more grounded but of course being grounded also means that you are present it's all about being present basically so to indwell uh, to to uh, be an inhabitant is to uh, be present and um, that means obviously in the interpersonal sphere, we find ourselves able to um, be heard. We find ourselves able to, you know, articulate what it is we're thinking and seeing, and, and actually, people draw forth from us uh, what it is we really think and feel by by being good listeners. So, on the other hand, we find ourselves able to listen and enable other people to um, express and uh, and be what they are. So, in that in that space, um, we create a home. We create a safe space. We create a place where we can. Um, you know, relax, take off our shoes, um, drop our guard and so on. So there's a kind of, and the metaphors there would be like, you know, around breaking bread together or sitting around a hearth, you know, that, that very sort of homely thing at the homestead. So it all 
folds in one one into the other. And I think the fact that the landscape is feeding us, you know, most of us have some sort of bit of grass or a hedgerow or something like that, or a bit of park or something, even in the city, there's all these green spaces, which are producing food in that kind of way of, um, you know, a a a mother or a host in a household providing for the people of the house and 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 there being a meal a table that we can sit down at i want you to start thinking if you don't already of these little patches of ground near your house as that as that kind of provision that that almost sort of uh, hosting or maternal provision um and something that it's possible to attend to at this time if you are stuck at home and indeed something for you to attend to in a way that creates that table that more than one person gathers around because if you're at home with children or your partner or other members of your family or housemates, you know, that you, you can gather around the hospitality of, of plants, which I'm going to suggest you, you get outside and, and look for. But it's the attention, you know, when we first, uh, Ali and my wife, we first uh, found the um, the metaphor that I think I, I go into a lot more detail on in, in the conversation with Alice many years ago. It, it's amazing that we saw... Uh, a, a, an interpersonal metaphor in the in the simple act of foraging, you know, just to notice plants that you wouldn't otherwise notice, is is a is a is a great metaphor for that listening space where you find out where other people are, um, and obviously vice versa. That there's a thing of people attending and responding to us, where they'll see what season of our life we're in and find a way to 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 respond. So it's all about the hearth um, and the homestead and and that kitchen table that we sit and eat around as far as I'm concerned that, that uh, there's an opportunity in these times um, of being shut away from life as it ordinarily is we're, we're, we're in slight trepidation and also quite excited about the idea of our two young children uh, who, who will be at school for the last time today for, for probably a couple of months um, if not longer that we're going to have a chance to to really sort of batten down the hatches and, and, and explore the uh, life in in the homestead in in a in a in a pretty unique way. No going to the cinema, no going to the cafe, no going to the swimming pool. Um, we can of course still go to the forest and and to the to uh, to walk. So I guess we're all in the same boat just now. Um, yeah, those are the kind of things I wanted to say. I'm going to be trying to uh, put out some more regular, um, very short podcasts in the next few weeks uh, to share some more thoughts like this and specifically go into. Uh, examples of plants that you could find very near to where you are um, and, and ways to use them. And I may also put some short videos out on, on Instagram. I've got to just see if I can get my head around that, but um, I think I think that's probably going to happen too. Okay, so now I'll get on with um, the podcast with Alice Fowler. Many of you will know, especially if you're Guardian readers, she does a, um, a gardening column for The Guardian, and she's very much um, someone that, that in her homestead, she's creating a diversity of cultivated things to eat as well as her knowledge of foraging and uh, fermentation, which is a point we connected around when I met her uh, a while ago at, at, at a festival. So Alice is, is, is a writer about gardening and plants and um, food to a lesser extent and, and also a um, former presenter on, on Gardener's World. But, you know, just really, really important work, especially in light of everything I've been saying on, on this introduction about life at home in the homestead and, and uh, just building that culture of a relationship to place through um, getting practically involved and, and eating what goes there. So now we'll get on to the conversation with uh, Alice Fowler. So I thought about you at the weekend because um, we had an interesting chat about fermentation when we met down at 
or Elliot. I don't yes, think. you had been fermenting something funny, didn't you? You had fermented Japanese knotweed. Was that right? Oh, is that what you thought was funny? Okay, yeah. No, no, I didn't. I mean, I don't think fermenting Jap- I don't think fermenting anything is funny. But you had made something and it hadn't gone quite to plan. Oh, I wonder what that was. I mean, Japanese knotweed. I don't know if it went to plan because we weren't sure what would happen. It, right. It, it certainly went very soft and mushy, but it's nice. Yeah. We, I say it's nice. We haven't. We, we, you know, we did loads of jars. Yeah. We've still got loads of jars, and that was four or five years ago. So. Right. One of those things, you know, you know, you know, you can do something and then you conclude it's nice when you taste it. Yeah. I guess it's because this is at work and not at home. So it kind of goes on the shelf and we bring it out to show people every once in a while. Yeah. I've never actually taken it home and... Um, and actually tried it. Well, I've tried like, it in the sense of tasting it, but I've yeah. not cooked with it or combined it with yeah, anything. It's just like, here's what Japanese knotweed's like when you ferment it. Yeah. It goes on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. But what that's proved is it does have a tremendous shelf life. It's, yeah, it's funny how you do. I think we all have those things where you like, yeah, five years ago I tried it. <laughs> Just shows that they're not quite when they don't quite win, do they? If it was so delicious, you'd made it every you'd have made it every year since. I don't think in in our case no, because we've got so, we we've we've got so much of a kind of. I mean, this isn't ongoing with fermentation. We have sort of fits and starts with it. But yeah. We, we're like let's ferment everything. Hmm. And and then we taste it and we like some things and we don't like other things. But everything that we like doesn't necessarily go home and, and yeah. stuff tradition in the house of how to use it. It's almost like that's that's another layer. Yeah. And and I feel like I'm probably more in that phase now. Um I'm more interested in how it can become part of family meals. Mm-hmm. But like to begin with, we were doing this big like scanning exercise. You know, let's 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 work through everything. Mm-hmm. And, and try and detect the the, the the kind of usefulness of it, or the or the what, what what lends itself to what, and things like that. These days, I'm much more interested in 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 just yeah meals, <laughs> family meals, and and family traditions. Ideally, you know, if we can get things that stick and we all like. Um, I've also found that what I really like at the moment is fermenting and then dehydrating. Ah. Because it a brings another layer to things which are maybe a bit mushy, or but it also makes them puts them in a really good storage position, and um, and I strangely find that sometimes once I've fermented and then dried, I use more of because like the fermented pickle flavour is so particular, and there's only so many dishes that you want to eat pickles with, but like maybe once it's dry it then becomes much more applicable to use it in all sorts of different ways that you wouldn't you wouldn't a traditional pickle. Recently I fermented, well last year I fermented black currants and gooseberries and then I dried them. And I've used them in cooking way more than I would if I had just left them as sort of pickles in the in the fridge. Yeah. Well, what I was gonna say is just that isn't it isn't it totally different once you've dried it? I mean I find that with a lot of things, you know the the drying process does chemically change it and so when you stick it back into something it's a different it is a different ingredient anyway yeah i think it like i think my fridge has become overwhelmed with too many pickles so now i'm really interested in getting past the point of pickles because although i love them like i say i tend to only really eat pickles with maybe like cooked meat and cheese and that kind of you know like a plate of of cold food whereas once 
it's dried and then it becomes it sort of turns itself more into an ingredient if that makes sense yeah 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 um and so i found that really exciting and the the dried gooseberries i've dried them two ways i've dried them so that they're completely dried for long-term storage and then i've kind of dried them so that they're semi-dried and they are the semi-dried are amazing they're like an olive wow all oh, right so you pick that up and eat it whole whereas the the, the other stuff would be more those yeah. all, they? The, the ones you completely dried you haven't kind of ground them up or anything yeah? no i haven't got to that stage that's a kind of also maybe a kind of gastronomical cooking that i wouldn't do like i'm very much just like a scratch cook at home making very much home meals um so the dried stuff is more than rehydrating them and using them for like pies and stuff and whatnot but the semi-dry um gooseberry i then use like i would olives so i could chop them up into pasta sauce or whatever and i found them really useful that way amazing I guess I was stuck in thinking about this the way somebody else described it to me. And by the way, I haven't done that at all. What you're do, what you're saying there, to drawing fermented stuff. But we had um, we had a chat with Matt Orlando from Amas Restaurant in Copenhagen. Oh, okay. All of that kind of Copenhagen scene where they're doing incredible tinkering things. Um, and he was talking about things like watercress, where your ferment. Um, most people find, or a lot of people find, that watercress beyond about 10 days gets a bit too funky. Mm. I mean, some people love it. It's like, like if you're into those kind of really extreme Asian, slightly stinky things, you'd like it. And I've, I've seen somebody just sit and eat half a jar of it when I showed <laughs> showed it to them in that condition, like the three-week-old um, fermented uh, watercress. So it is to some people's taste. But what Matt has done with that and other things, which he feels they kind of peak at a certain point, say 10 days for argument's sake, what they'll do is they'll, um, they'll blitz it and then make kind of nori out of it, nori sheets. So they're blitzing it, rolling it flat. So that's why I immediately thought you were doing some kind of blitzing, but, but they then use that as this, uh, I think this extraordinary chef's ingredient, you know, fermented watercress nori. Yeah. We're about to try it. We've just been talking about, it. we're about to try it with some, we've got a batch of uh, fermented wild garlic. And last year's batch is so much better than anything we've ever done before. We still have a bit from the previous year, so that's going to be turned into nori. So that's a really interesting idea. I might have to have a go at that because, like, nori at least is useful, <laughs> like in a home cook. Yeah. You know, some of the powders and whatnot. I mean, I got the Noma fermentation book, and I love it, but quite a lot of it is just, you know, it's just not the kind of cooking you would do at home on a weekday just isn't yeah i'm afraid most of most of the output of those kind of restaurants generally is like it's more <laughs> a curiosity to have the book rather than that you're actually seriously going to cook anything. unless it was a project you know you might say to your mates shall we cook a recipe from that book and yeah. for it you know take it three weeks to plan and get all the equipment and, but no i mean i agree with you i'm 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 really looking at um all of the stuff um that i do with 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 the ingredients as just easily used um ingredients or or even i'm quite into the idea of uh sort of jerky type things and by that i just mean anything that's dried and easy to put in your pocket and carry around doesn't weigh much so you know like actual jerky or fruit leathers or dried mushrooms or anything like that i'm quite into that um tinkering around with um hawthorn fruit leather flavored with a few different things 
And the idea is just, it is just to say, well, there's loads of this now and there won't be loads of this in four months' time, but what can we do to, 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 uh, to sort of catch this part of the season and make it available at other times? So, I mean, fruit leather is the one thing that does not sit around in this house. <laughs> like, if I make it, it just goes so quickly. Um, I make a lot of fruit leathers for exactly that reason. And I've got, over time, I've got much better at making small batches yeah. and then having another flavour and then having another flavor. I used to be like, you know, like, you know, the apocalypse is coming and I have enough jars to take me through to the next five years. Yeah, um, and yeah. now... Where are, we, where are we ever going to find a home for all of this blackberry jam? Or <laughs> <laughs> really. And now I'm much more like, enjoy it, finish it, and really look forward to having it again this time next year. Yeah. I can very much change my mindset. Um, which is good because it means what happens is that I'm more experimental and there are more flavours coming through those kind of preserves and ferments. It's easier to be, one thing is a small batch you can be a bit more daring with because yeah. it's only a small batch. Yeah. Even if you don't like it that much, you'll soon get through it. Whereas a big batch, you feel like you've got to get it absolutely, absolutely yeah. right because otherwise you'll be lumbered with it. Yeah. That's what I find. I'm, in a way, my, I did have a short phase um, of, of really uh, logging everything. Somebody gave me this template and we were logging, you know, condition A, condition B, ingredients, this, that, and the other. But, but when we when we really went to town with that, I found that, um, you know, uh, nine out of ten conditions were horrible anyway. I thought, I've, I've taken all that time yes. and all of this information and uh, I'll never do that again. Um, I don't know about you, but I am also not, like I never make, I mean, I'm probably a bit frustrating in that way, but I never make the same thing twice. Like, I always change things. Like, my nature of cooking is, like, I've got this on hand, so I'll use it now. But the next time I make it, that ingredient might not be on hand. So I'm really – it's almost pointless for me to stick to very kind of concrete recipes. Like, they need to be a kind of movable feast because that's how the garden works for me. Like, I will not necessarily this time next year have the same amount of kale that I have this year. So I need the the kind of green part of the dish to represent whatever greens are available rather than a specific thing. Yeah. And I think my cooking is much more kind of, you know, sort of old-fashioned kind of home cooking in that way. You use what you've got around rather than kind of modern recipe-driven stuff. Yeah. I mean, I wonder what the future of that is anyway, really. I guess the po the point of a recipe, if, if, if it has a point beyond serving up that particular meal on that particular occasion, if you understand what you're doing, it's to, it's to, uh, it's to instill an approach. Some if you're slavishly following that recipe, you're probably not going to understand what you're doing and you're not going to... But um, I mean, I think there's a really interesting... I have this big, and I will not get stuck in it, but I have this big thing about the kind of... Um, the patriarchal sort of um dominance in food and food writing right now oh. so although there are a lot of clearly women food writers and chefs and whatnot what you found is that a lot of through tv and you know that kind of promotion there are a lot of recipes which are very specific and they are you know, in order to sell books and tv programs and whatnot rather than a teaching of cooking which is this is the basis. This is how you build on it, and this is yeah. 
this and this and this makes it this kind of this dish with quite a kind of um open boundaries to what the edge of the dish is which is old-fashioned home cooking which is how we've really got here could you draw out the patriarchy bit well of the- there's a lot of men on tv telling women how to cook yeah. When you look, when you really, really look at it, what is happening is that they are there is a male-dominated um, celebrity chef. That's the just there's a lot more men than women. Yeah, I mean, I, just as a brief aside, I'm I'm not sure that anyone is really showing you how to cook. I think they're just showing you. Yeah. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Who on earth because, because, cooks that after they've seen it on t- It's just it, it to me. It's like it's like having. Um, a music program through through a silent medium. Yeah. Like musicians on a black and white film with, with, with no sound. What, how have we got to this food TV thing? You, know, you can't smell it. You can't taste it. You can't... It's, what, well, what is this? Yeah, well, this comes into my... Because I think late capitalism has really hijacked feminism. So what you you do is you say, right, equal opportunities, everybody must go out to work. Then what this what largely has happened to women is that they go out to work, but they still continue to do the majority of work at home around housework and childcare and stuff like that. And then you've sold back this weird leisure industry, which is you will probably buy in pre-made food, sit at a TV and watch somebody cook the food that you would have been doing yourself. Yeah. But in a way that is maybe not quite accessible to you because it's got more ingredients or it's been made to look fancy and da, 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 da. And then you will sit on the sofa drinking your glass of wine because this is your leisure time. Your leisure time is to consume not food, yeah. but the image of food. Um, and I realise, you know, that's a bit sort of tongue-in-cheek, but I, I do think there is something around that. And I think it's really interesting that it is largely male-dominated chefs on that scene doing that kind of cooking. Because it's a very it's a very different. Even when it's like, okay, this is we're going to teach you how to make, you know, just using three ingredients. We're going to teach you how to make things quickly at home. It's not still the kind of cooking that you do for a family with two small kids, and you know. Not even Jamie. You don't think Jamie's the exception to the rule here? To some extent, I suppose. But I still feel like it's selling something back rather than empowering. I mean, I like to think that Jamie's probably got a few young lads cooking that might not have done that sort. Uh, oh, for sure. I think, look, I think the male chefs have got a lot of men cooking. But it's, again, it's a really different kind of, it's a different kind of cooking than, it's the kind of showy on the Sunday, Sunday meal cooking. Yeah. Rather than like, bam, we've only got 15 minutes to feed everybody. Mm. This is the kind of nutritious end of it. I mean, I'm not getting at anybody. Like, I don't understand you know, the, it's very complex how that has happened. And like I say, it's, in my mind, it's late capitalism's kind of hijacking of feminism, which is this sense that there can be equal opportunities in a late capitalist world. Just, they just can't. <laughs> like by late capitalists kind of um, viewing, feminism just allowed another workforce. It didn't allow gender equality, is how I see it. Anyhow... <laughs> I think it's good. I'm really up for talking about this. I mean, so um, I mean, I'm very interested in the in the feminine, what the feminine uh, is or has or does um, that is that is lacking. That that's where I kind of sit and ponder this whole gender thing. Not necessarily in terms of individuals, 
and we had a big debate about this a couple of weeks ago with a discussion about um, tribal cultures and so on. For me, it's not a matter of necessarily men and women, but like the, the feminine and masculine characteristics that we've got this kind of terrible imbalance of, of you know, toxic or distorted or just yeah. too strong kind of masculine thing. And, 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 and the sort of, uh, which is why I was interested when you started out by saying about the, the recipe. So you, you were kind of saying like all this precision and exactitude is, is, is quite male. Is that, is that the Yeah, I do think it is. I mean, I think that comes, that's sort of been driven by restaurants where you go to a rest. I mean, I remember actually our friend, like um, Ben, like talking to him about it. And he's like, yeah, but the point about a restaurant is you go for a meal and everything has to be consistent. You have to send out, you know, 60, 600, whatever it is, of exactly the same meal, because that's what people have come to to. To, to expect and to want and that's why they're coming to the restaurant they're not coming for it to slightly change next week and so it takes it makes a kind of cooking which is very precise and this is how it's done and and that's very different from the home cooking which is this is what we've got and therefore we will make something that is an approximate of the thing based on what we've got um and so i i do think the kind of restaurant culture has has driven that and restaurant culture in itself is driven around kind of male success it's it's notoriously hard for women to do well in it partly because it's got a bit of that like toxic masculinity that it's quite a hard place and you have to you know work really hard I don't I don't I mean I don't work in the restaurant trade so it would be really ridiculous for me to sort of say what it's like but my experience of looking onto it is that it's not necessarily the easiest place to be a woman in at a certain level well I think there's a lot of patriarchs around this is this is uh, this is quite obvious. I mean, the celebrity chef is you know, mm. a dominant male essentially mm -hmm. in his uh, in his little patch of the world, and so um, that's what you need to be if you want to succeed. You know? I think it's funny because for me, the 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 term hospitality applied to restaurants is a really interesting one because you know hospitality is something that happens in a home, isn't it? Um, so what is this? You know, we, we go in and a bunch of strangers do stuff for us for money. I I increasingly can't understand it. You know, it just it seems it seems like it's all everything's there, and then there's not the thing that makes it the whole that some greater than some of its parts. The food's perfect. Yes. The decision is perfect. The waiter has said everything right that he should or he or she should have said. And yet that that hole that's great in the summer is part. And the hole that's great is the actual hospitality. You are not bringing yes. me to your home. I'm paying you to, to make food for me. Mm -hmm. And we can pretend that this is, you know, we're mates and you're glad to see me again. And, and, and the chef has done this because it's an act of love. But it's not an act of love. I, yeah, whether, whether people could get closer to that or there's, there's really great examples that I'm missing. You know, there's one place we go to where we do feel like that. I don't know quite how it's happened, but a couple of people have fallen into chefing there that didn't come from a chefing background, and, and it's ended up feeling a lot more like I'm going to a friend's house, you know, but most of that, feel that, yeah. Is that proximity? Because I have one or two places like that, and it's actually because it's my neighbourhood. It, it comes in that, like, square mile idea that you have, yeah. have you know, and it's your, that is your extended home. 
and the kind of the cafes that I go to regularly, which make incredible food, are an extension of my home. They are that square mile kind of. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, it's not just that they make wonderful food and are close to me, but they make my sense of home because they make the neighborhood a place I want to be in. And, you know, like there is a daily, almost daily recognition of seeing each other and saying hi and, you know, and therefore they are like a bigger part of my clan, I feel. Yeah, yeah. So those are those are real life, actual relationships and real life threads of actual meaning in your yeah. life. Yeah. There is a trans. There's more than one transaction going on there. Mm. There's more than just the money transaction. There is this transaction of the fact that we are we have made up a community together. I'm always really interested in those ideas in the city because the city is is really um, the antithesis of that small community. I grew up in a in a tiny village on the outside of a tiny village in a very small community where everybody knew everybody and my dad was the local doctor and you know now I live in a city the second largest city in the country where that like trying to recreate that sense of the community that I grew up in even if those those people who are around me are not necessarily close to me they they make up my my people in the same way that I remember from my childhood you know like I couldn't say I was close to the postmistress but she was somebody who I recognized and knew as part of my you know. Are you in Birmingham? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm always really interested in how we remake those kind of almost tribal connections yeah. in cities. And, and, and like, it is interesting that, again, it goes into this kind of late capitalist thing. I really love my local coffee shop. I write there a lot. I know the owner, Joe, well. They feel like, they feel like very good friends. But there is still a transaction. You're right you're still paying for the experience. I'm not going around to have coffee with him because he just wants to give me a coffee. Yeah. Um, no, though, because I think I think what you're saying in terms of there have been several different transactions, you know, in the village, there would have been plenty of transactions. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd have got all of the stuff that you needed um, and, and it wouldn't all have been stuff you grew yourself. There'd be commerce or barter or whatever. And so there was nothing wrong with that. It, it, it's just the fact that it doesn't go any deeper than that mm. in, in, the, in, the, in the large large part of the restaurant industry. It is um, it is this um, transaction for money primarily. And yet, what I don't know. It's like the, the uh, I mean, I said I said this last week to a to a chef I was talking to about how the um, the focus of most chefs, when they when they try and sum up what they're doing, they say it's all about the flavour, it's all about deliciousness, and so on. And and I've been puzzled by that for years because I kind of I thought, is it? I'm, I'm now kind of um, confident enough of what I was trying to feel out or say to say no, it definitely isn't all about flavour, definitely. But like, and, and I'm still trying to um, flesh this out. But like, <laughs> it is it is the uh, the interconnectedness of, of of things that we we get into. That place of nurture that that you you are actually uh, finding you're creating that space. If you, in other words, if you're really good at hospitality, and and this isn't trying to be um, like pigeonhole people, but in, in in the vast majority of cases, you know, in homes, it has been mothers that have that have created the food, and 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 um, generally would have been hosting when when more people came into the house. 
so anyway, regardless of whether it's mothers, but like the, the achievement that's 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 uh, that's well, the achievement of really good hospitality. Yes, flavors in there, but it, it's so much more than that. It's it's creating a space. It's how people feel welcomed, how people feel. I don't know. They're participating in the meanings that you have in your household without it seeming esoteric. You just kind of get the feeling of this is the way we do. This, this is why or we have a tradition of this or a tradition of that. And it's the place that I'd, I'd anyway, you can see I'm probably still at the start of trying to what I'm trying to say here. But it isn't it isn't just about clever food, basically. It's, no. Hospitality is is there are other things which are far more important about hospitality than that. And I guess one of the really big things is is that restaurant food, there's an, an essential inequality in that restaurant food is always only going to be available to people who can afford it. Yeah. Whereas hospitality, by its very nature, is available to everybody because it doesn't really matter if all you're offering is like a handful of nuts. If it's done in the right way, it's an incredibly hospitable, yeah. um, you know, isn't it? It's a, a action, and so and so. The weird thing about restaurants is that it is really only for those who can afford it, the top one percent or whatnot. Um, and then and then those other small, but very well, not small actually, but those other very significant um, actions within that, so that the wait staff may be being paid considerably less than the person who is affording to come in and. You know, the whole system then has its own funny little inequalities into it, doesn't it? So that, you know, you are a wait staff because you can only make this much money and, da, 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 you know, I mean, I realise that there's examples where that's not true and, and that's not for me to degrade the job of being in the service industry at all. But, like, at some point you have to recognise the inequalities around that. Well, it's the root of it because if you... If you if- if, if you look at the history of restaurants, they are quite simply when uh, wasn't it the French Revolution or something when 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 all the all the aristocrats had their heads cut off, all these chefs were unemployed, so they had to open restaurants. So they they they, they learnt their trade by being basically staff for for the for the uh, the rich and the powerful, and now it was kind of slightly democratised. But now you 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 staff for the people that can afford it. Um, when they're walking down the street, sort of thing, and I think, I think, I think we have to face that. We have to confront the fact that this, this is a, that the restaurant itself is is a, is a manifestation of of the the class system, you know. That um, it, at least as we understand it in Europe. But like, but having said that, you get into like street food and things like that. It's a, it's a bit of a different. Um, yes, I suppose there's always been though, isn't there? Because once there was a um, a workforce that was movable, industrialization, you have people being taken off the land and put into cities, then there's always going to be another group of people to feed them. Yeah. Because that's where that kind of street food and cheap and kind of canteen food comes from, doesn't it? The industrialization of a workforce that were originally subsistence farmers, and then they get moved into the city, don't have anywhere to grow. Then they need to eat cheap food, and that's where it appears in that kind of. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. Point. So there's a there's a kind of there's another side, which is about the like the loss of land. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of super interesting as well. Well, of course, the thing is with the loss of land is that is that we've. I mean, I've, I'm I'm kind of seeing these sort of layers of, of um, you know, feminine hospitality really, and a lot of things I'm thinking about um. 
thinking about you know the hospitality of wombs and the breast and and things like that but like um which which if you study animals that's how they learn what to eat you know an animal that's had a that is grazed on wild lands where the herd has been there for a long time they develop culture mother eats this the infant experiences that in the womb when it comes out it watched it suckles breast milk which has got the same compounds in then it watches mum eat it if you take any bit of that out the the the, uh, the infant is less likely to be able to a find and b metabolize those plants so you know and if if you if you look at us like that we have been taken off the wild land and we don't have the culture because we've taken off the wild land so the mothers aren't eating the plants so the babies can't get it in the womb or the breast or, or the or the or the kitchen table you know so this is really interesting but but when you when you look at what's going on with that wild land the thing that i keep thinking about is is the hospitality of the land you know that the, the the earth is is a nursing mother a, providing a feast a banquet and so on and um and what's happened to that? You know, somehow, somehow, you know, our our food culture needs to get back to to all of those things. But it but it it, it seems to me it's something that will unfold um, quite naturally if we just. So basically, the thing with those animals is get them back on wild land without any fences, mm-hmm. leave them there for a few generations. Yeah. Don't eat the mother because yeah. she's an elder, and she needs to be able to pass this wisdom down. Eat somebody else. You know, yeah. if you, some of the herd, you know, yeah. don't that, that elder because she's passing on the knowledge, you know. Um, you know, it's just really interesting for me that we 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 would see this thing unfold just like a plant unfolds once it goes from seed to seedling to thing, you know, humans and culture. But but it's why I'm I'm so kind of disconcerted with with the restaurant being the thing that tells us how food is, you know. I think, well, no, 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 because. What we need is those linkages, mm. bonds between people and land, but also the conviviality the, the, and the hosting, you know, mm-hmm. the, the between the host and the people that come, that you're being gathered into a space, a cultural space, an emotional space, a social space, you know. So basically the thing that's lacking is social capital. And I hate to even use that term, but but it, it, it's the way that people have explained it in a, in a way, you know, that, that, that you, you've, instead of this kind of cash thing, you've got that you're building strong links between people through what it is you're doing. And that after a little while of doing that, you're rich, you know, mm. restaurants aren't doing that, you know, and, 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 and the reason I'm sort of got a bee in my bonnet about it is because I think, well, food is the, is the key folks. You know, if we're going to unlock this thing, we're locked out, basically we're locked out of land. We're locked out of our own heritage as, as beings in bodies. We're locked out of our own heritage as, as beings in bodies that that, that that are evolved, very sophisticated. We're very sophisticatedly evolved to relate and and form cohesion, social cohesion. We're locked out of all three, though. We're, we're out of the land, we're out of our bodies, we're out of each other, you know. And, 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 and food's the key, I believe, to unlock all of it. But we're not going to, if we're farting around with flavor and fancy pants show-off chefs, you know, yes. what we need is mothers who who know how to bring us to the table, yes, and 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 get that social capital going to be rich with that. So, ah, so I, yeah, intersectional feminism is the answer to everything. Is it? 
I've never heard yes. of it. <laughs> because this is exactly what, like, I, honestly, now whenever I come to any, when I come to the root of every problem, I'm like, oh, yeah, intersectional feminism. You know, the environment, intersectional feminism. You know, capitalism, intersectional feminism. Racism, intersectional feminism. If half of the species, you know, if half of our species is still, if we cannot treat half of our species as an equal to the other half, every other problem like is at the you know that is at the root of it over and over and over again like sometimes I walk down the street and I am I am actually crushed to the point that I want to just lie down on the pavement because I think of all of these problems and then I see the solution it's power and it just needs to be given up by half like half of the species just need to inherently give up their power so that we can have some sense of equality. And when it's that, like you have these moments where you're walking down the street and you see men, and, I, and I, I'm not like that, it's very hard in feminism not to sound like you're man-hating and I am not at all, but you see, that's not where I'm coming from, but you see this other and you think, you, it's like as you pass, you're like, wow, you have a power that that is, that if you could just give up, overnight this problem could go away. But like, how do you get those power shifts? And that's the like, that's the the overwhelming big question of my entire life right now. It's like, how do you give up dominance of power? Because it's a really complicated thing. It's like, it's not, it's not surprising that it has never been given up. Because it is the one in that term of social capital. It is the one thing that if you have, like, it is the one thing that top trumps everything. And, you know, in that whole language that people either hate or, you know, or have issue with, but whatever, though, it's a good way of explaining it for right now. Those invisible privileges, even once they're made visible, you know, they're your maybe entire life being. So to suddenly give it up is a, is a really complex, it's a whole new world. And at, at the end of all of these things, I come to the fact that intersexual feminism is so wholly important right now. And it is the one thing that I feel like we have to strive for. Could you explain what it is? Because So intersectional feminism, the intersection, I mean, feminism, as people know, is the, is the idea that there would be some parity between the genders, that there is an, an inequality between the two genders and that that needs to be addressed. The intersectional bit is that, that at where that parity appears, so wherever the inequality is, it is there are many other sections to it that factor into that. So racism, environmentalism, xenophobia, homophobia, class equality. These things are these things are all part of feminism. They are not feminism and this. They are they are the kind of the many sections that make up feminist issues. And that it is really important to understand that there are like never-ending hierarchies and everything. So as a cis white feminist i have a lot of privilege that is not held by my sisters who are people of color by trans women by people who are in different class than me by people who you know are of a you know different nationality than me and so on and so forth so that that the, the nuances around intersexual feminism is to recognize that there are lots of things within it that make that matter as much as the feminist issue but to also inherently understand the hierarchies 
so that you can say, okay, well, my experience as a white feminist is that, you know, that for me, it's about the gender pay gap, but that might be a very different experience for someone. My experience of the gender pay gap may be very different for somebody else's, I suppose, as one example. It's mostly about power. It's mostly about the fact that there are these inequalities and... and hmm. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting around the environment. The, the reason I came to it is that I came, kept coming up with these inherent issues around environmentalism and why it wasn't being tackled as a subject and why we are in these problems. And actually, when you get to it, it's it's like because land grabbing and racism and is such a big thing, you know, because land grabbing and um, and economics and feminism is such a big thing. And you're like, oh, actually, at the at the end of all of this is feminist issues which is that women are not being treated equal when you come when you come right the way down to the very bottom bit it's like huh yeah well i can see (laughs) if women were treating treated equal then maybe we could address this bit and then maybe we could address that bit and so on and so forth but overwhelmingly complex things and like i say i i you can say all of this stuff and you can have all of this theory but at the end of the day how any of us give up our, our power is incredibly complex and not easy. And I say that from somebody who sits in a position of a lot of power by being a white middle-class cis woman. Yeah. I walk around with a great deal of privileges. I mean, how would you respond to the idea that any of these positions of power are what any any of us are doing by, by, you know, consolidating the power or clinging to the power or, you know, going further into that position um, is we are um, opting out of being um, nurtured. Hmm. Yeah, I don't. um, I've been following this really interesting thing on Instagram. This is a bit of a sideline, but I think I think it maybe comes somewhat close to it, which is which is this Instagram account by a a woman of color who um, has run. is running something called the NAP Ministry, and um, and it's all about the fact that having a nap is something that like the importance of being able to like that it's not a it should not be a privilege or it should not be something that you're earned. Being able to have rest is actually something that is inherent to being human, and and so the kind of um, where it's coming from is that as kind of people of color have been inherently like they have. Um, they have an inheritance of not being able to to nap because they have been slaves because they have been made to work really hard because and they're actually like you the great privilege of being now is to be able to say i bail out of this capitalist thing and i'm taking a nap i'm not spending money i'm not like i'm not adding to this kind of you know um uh, rabbit like like this hamster wheel of production i'm just going to stop and like yeah. And, and completely bail out and have a nap. And it's this really fantastic Instagram account. It's incredibly interesting where like every day there is a reason why you should just take a nap. Um, and I guess that's that's kind of somewhat similar to what you're saying, right? Like we need to learn to nurture ourselves in a really different way than we currently are, which isn't about like consumption and commodities and, and like... Um, self-care and well-being and all of you know and doing yoga and all of these things but is about having genuine relationships nurturing relationships yeah 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because when I'm saying uh, nurturing, it's, 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 it's dropping your guard and losing control because you, 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 you actually work out, well, this is better. You know, if, if I'm trying to hold this all together so that I get what I need. Now, obviously, harder to relinquish that control when you've got vast amounts or vast amounts of power or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm interested in, in, in you kind of bringing that home to everyone's place to roost, you know, that we all have to look at our actual power that we have that we struggle to relinquish. But, you know, the, the, the point is the difference between power and, and um, well, in one sense, vulnerability, but in another sense, opting in to a thing where everything is taken care of, you know, because if you, if you participate in this matrix, this fabric of life, it's all coming to you. It just might not come when you stamp your foot, you know, you, you, but it is coming, you know. Yeah. And so I, I do think that, that hey, this is, this is at the, the root of, I'm fairly stuck on a, a, a blanket critique of agriculture because that was a shift mm-hmm. from allowing land to, to nurture and care for us and the whole culture based around sustaining that relationship with whatever kind of culture and, you know, sacredness and taboos and, and rituals and, and, and everything like that but it, it everything was towards maintaining that nurturing relationship our position in relation to everything that we were nurtured by you know and we moved away i i kind of think of it as a move to say you know sorry this is not good enough i, I need i need i need more guarantees here you know there's no good just sitting here waiting to be provided for by the land by the seas by the seasons by the trees by the fish the Whatever you know, that's not good enough. I, I I need a guarantee, so I'm going to take control now, and then we start to um, force the hand, as it were, by um, ploughing and planting seeds and so on. So, I I kind of think it's that's a move away from the mother. You know, that's like now we're going to well, we're going to rip our mother and make her do what we want instead of you know. And this this is um, I don't know. I I I guess I'm a lot more feminist in my thinking in the last five years or so, just because I've been meditating on that one thing. I think, well, actually, this, this provision is feminine. It's, it's, it's maternal. And, and, and uh, it, it does kind of make the, the womb and, the, and, the, and all of this kind of slow gestation, nurturance thing. Is, is, that is, if you look at life, that is dominant. The male bit is this occasional squirt, if you pardon my graphic. <laughs> you know but yeah. that's it you know and then withdraw and, and leave the gestation to happen and, and just just say you're right love do you want a cup of tea that sort of thing but but the 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 thing that is actually dominant in in life systems that's doing all the work and and bringing all the good stuff is is um is this feminine principle which i've been really surprised because i'm i'm quite sort of uh unreformed in some of my attitudes but this this is this is this has got this kind of feminist idea under my skin um and it's it's uh yeah you read braiding sweetgrass i just started reading braiding sweetgrass yeah because i feel like it's one of those books that really um distills that idea down in such a kind of it's interesting because all the people who i know who've read it are women and i've only ever had conversations with women about it i've never had a conversation with a man so i don't know how i don't know if it's a thing that is written so specifically almost for women that I wonder if it's but I, I that book has 
is like almost like a kind I have a I have a kind of very spiritual feeling about that book because it's managed in such a kind of effortless way her writing is just so beautiful to to marry that the like the science and the kind of intellectual and the spiritual around that idea of nurture in a way that I haven't read in anything else but I, it might also be a book which is like doesn't necessarily work for men. I don't know. Like, I just was going to say, I I I recently got a copy which was bought for me by another bloke. So that, that. oh, that's interesting. Then maybe not. Have you read this book? I bought that book as a gift for for Joel, who edits the the podcast. Um, he's read it, and I haven't. I need. To, Maybe he has to borrow it back. Um, so tell me, tell me. So it's against the grain by James C. Scott, who I think is a like either Harvard or Yale or somewhere like that. He's a big university press professor, um, Yale University, and um, it's all about how um, the domestication of um, early grains was the beginning of capitalism because it. Um, instills an idea of counting and having to record keep and storage um and that these early domestic domestications of um of grains was the beginning of capitalism and and like the and the inherent problems with that so so like many of the books of this ilk it takes a very um it says that um when we were sort of hunter-gathering, our, our late, before the very end of hunter-gathering, but like late hunter-gathering was when we were actually our most successful in terms of our health, in terms of our relationship with the earth and how much it could provide. It's important to point out when you say late hunter-gatherers, of course, there are some very recent late hunter-gatherers. You, 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 you know, so, yes, um, but I mean, as a dominant, as a dominant, well, like... But it was but, dominant in a... Australia until 1788. I mean, that's very recent. There wasn't yeah, yeah, any- no, and it and it looks right up the way it it doesn't it it doesn't end in a kind of paleo by any means. It, yeah. it has kind of current ideas, but I mean, as a kind of world hmm. system, and it's looking very much because it's looking at like the fertile crescent and where grain is, where grain yeah. was domesticated. So it's kind of using that because also even like Japan, for instance had an incredibly successful hunter-gatherer community until much later than everywhere else. It's just not really talked about very much. Well, you I know. wonder if they actually held on to that more strongly than, than, than many cultures in Japan, because like they're, 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 um, they basically still have an animist culture. Mm-hmm. The, the, the Shinto religion, I know very little about, but I've just gleaned some, some rough sketch of um, what goes on, i.e., you know, at certain times of the year, They'll have this bard or this flower, and they eat a meal that that is celebrating that very short seasonality. But the point is, it's a it's a meal of metaphors because that bud means something within their within yes. Their, so that's that's a very hunter gatherer thing. Yeah. It'll still be in in the twenty first century in in Tokyo, you know. <laughs> well, they're like I mean, in this book, they, it talks about them as kind of semi pastoralists. So basically, that they up until there was a kind of really terrible kind of winter frost. I can't quite remember where it was. There was a sort of, not ice age, but like a mini ice age sort of thing that wiped them out. They essentially, the the coastline of Japan was so fertile 
that you really didn't have to, you didn't really have to move very far and you could just gather. So, I mean, sushi is like the earliest Japanese food. You just go, <laughs> you just go and eat lovely raw fish because there's so much fish and oysters and whatnot. And then China introduces rice. And, and so rice is that, that the Japanese example of the grain that comes in that brings in a sort of capitalist society. It's it, it, I mean it's in, it's incredibly intense but very well written. Um, and yeah, super interesting to have a kind of academic like yeah. look at like things you know because I mean and, and as you as you know because there's plenty written about domestication of grain that the the domestication of grain is seen as like the point where civilization starts but actually <laughs> so like you know it's flipping that on its head and saying well actually that was the beginning to be a bit of a decline of a certain kind of civilization because there, there are such sophisticated hunter-gathering methods which kind of allowed you to have as much as grain but without having to work that hard and it's more than as much as grain because the 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 thing we've lost um to a very large extent is diversity through moving into into this uh, agricultural thing you know, it's, it's narrowed down species diversity nutritional diversity mm. cultural diversity so it's all it's all kind of homogenous. It's the start of the homogenization. And I, I, I see it as like a, a wheel that's, that started spinning then, you know, that's just gone faster and faster mm-hmm. um, because um, it was basically severing linkages right from the outset. So as soon as we started only farming a few species, our relationship with all these other species disappeared. As soon as we domesticated these animals, our relationship with all these others. And it was slowly because people were still hunting and gathering when they were farming, but now we see it kind of go into another acceleration in the industrial revolution mm-hmm. where, you know, we, we're, we're now modernizing farming and doing everything that came with that at the same time as starting to produce machines that, so it's all about severing linkages basically. And, and, and now we're, we're severing linkages with, with information technology, you know, we're, we're in this cyberspace instead mm-hmm. of out interpersonal space or our ecological space or our body space we're in cyberspace to me it's it all starts there it all starts there with this let's let's take the grain and 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 domesticate it we were we were just we basically lit lit the touch paper you know <laughs> it's still burning but it's burning really burning now yeah. um what i don't find in any of these um books that, that I've looked at so far, like, you know, the, the guns, germs and steel book and, and other homo sapiens guy. No, no one's actually saying, well, how do we go back? It, it's like, it's too late. You know, we've, we've, we left, we left the garden. Of, you know, I think that's a great metaphor to, 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 to being kicked out of the garden of Eden. Very interesting. You know, it says that uh, if you read that story, which I, I'm looking at that a lot, because I think there's a lot in it. Um, you know, it says Adam was sent forth to plow, you know, so it's like, okay, if that's what you want, if that's what you want, you go and plow then. Out you go, two angels with flaming swords and better not let that fella back in here. <laughs> and now he's plowing and we, you know, that's, that's a disaster. Um, anyway, it's like nobody's saying, how do we get back in? Really? We're just saying, this is, this is, this is irreversible. We now are techno-human we now are agri-human i mean i'm i'm kind of i don't know if i'm a lone voice i'm sure other people are trying to say it but 
I mean, there's people saying anti-civilization thing, let's go back to anarcho-primitivist sort of thing. I, I'm definitely not saying that, but it's like, to me, we lost that fundamental relation with, with land at that point. <laughs> and, and, and then when we talk about, okay, we can't go back because of the carrying capacity, I just think, no, that's the wrong place to start. Mm-hmm. What I think is, can we have a non-abusive, non-coercive relationship with the land? Can we do that? And what would that look like? Because it definitely wouldn't look like plowing and, and, and all the stuff we do now. There must be something which, which, which has that, it must be possible for us to, uh, to, to, to become reciprocal, trusting, oh yeah, what do you think? Intersectional feminism. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to have a non-abusive, non-coercive relationship with the land, it has to start with your own species. Uh, I just, I just wonder if I say, what's, what's the square root of 33? Are you going to say? Feminism, really, honestly, though. I mean, really, it's like in that radical idea, right? You don't want to abuse Mother Earth. Well, you have to not abuse. I'm not, you know, and I'm not saying you by any means. Let me make this 100% clear. I do not believe that you are having a coercive, abusive relationship with women. But as long as women are worldwide, not equals. I do not understand if we cannot get it right in our own species, how we start to get it right with any other species. Is my is my feeling there? And I don't. I, I don't. I think. I think that. There has been such a shit. I mean, I think it's a really tough time politically right now for any group. But there has been great shifts in feminism. I am the product of a, you know, like I am a daughter of a mother who had a very different kind of upbringing compared to me. Like, it is very possible to make these shifts. These these things are, are not impossible around our own gender equality. And I think when that radical shift starts to get closer it's very easy for people to say if we can make this this radical shift we can make many other radical shifts i really i really do believe a hundred percent believe that well it's funny you should say it because like i mean it's i'm a bit nervous about getting into this territory but like i I feel i kind of have to really i do feel that i've got sort of misogynistic tendencies that 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 i'm addressing at, at the moment and they they do play out in my relationship to my wife um, and honestly, Alice, I, I, I can tell you that the, the, the shift that started happening for me to kind of recognize these things and begin to, 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 to work with the process to kind of undo it, you know, dismantle these, these ways of thinking and behaving and speaking and, and whatnot, they really have come from the thought that I've just articulated to you, to, to, you know, to realize that the, the relationship that I have with, with land is one of letting things come rather than seeking them happen mm. and that 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 well that's it really you know and 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 that the, the male thing is very much forcing like that that, that you, you you just kind of insist on your point of view you insist on what you want to happen or the way things are and, and you can't work out why people aren't just tagging along i've learned that lesson from 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 foraging honestly mm-hmm. it's 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 and it took me a while to realize what I was learning. I thought, mm-hmm. hang on a minute, this 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 has direct implications for the kind of conversation I'm having with my wife. Yes. I'm not letting things come naturally here. I'm 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 you know, I'm driving it, I'm pushing it. And and this is this is this is toxic masculinity. Oops. Um 
And the lovely thing about kind of about the land and about Mother Nature, for if that's not too much of a cliche to put into here, is that she is always giving. Even when we're really abusive, <laughs> she is still giving. That's a bit of a weird one, that, isn't it? I, I was thinking about that on the way down, actually. I was, I was walking across this piece of land and thinking about the... the, the I was thinking about that exact thing because you can't really transfer that onto people, can you? You can't sort of say, "No, we're going to carry on giving even though we've been." Yeah. No, you can't. You can't. But somehow or another, Earth is a different kind of thing. It, she in, does keep giving, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. In braiding with sweet grass, in the end, she has this lovely thing which is about choosing joy, which I really it was one of the reasons why I find it such an profound book because it, it gave me the one piece of information that I needed. It gave me permission to do the one thing that I, I was looking for, I suppose, which is, you know, these conversations can be so dark. They can be so overwhelming. It, the, the work ahead looks just, you know, insurmountable. But in the end of Braiding the Sweetgrass, she writes about the fact that, that, that this thing that Earth is always giving even in the worst moments, the land gives back to us. And the, in those moments, we find joy. And if you choose joy as your method of going forth, you will always yeah. be able to keep tackling stuff. And I, and I really love that idea. Like, these are hard, complicated, not easy conversations to have. But once you start them, whether it's around racism or misogyny or feminism or homophobia or whatever they are, Actually, the worst bit is starting the conversation because after that, you're quite quickly on a route to finding joy because you realise you can change. Mm. And that is a really joyous feeling, isn't it? Once you once you identify the problem, you're like, "Wow, that's horrible!" But now I have a choice. You can't identify the problem; you don't have a choice. You just get stuck in a in a in a rut going in one direction. So I think I think that is so interesting and the other thing she does towards the end of the book is talk about our need to shift language and I'm really fascinated by this and one of the things that she she comes up with which I think is kind of quite complicated but although I think part of our society and in, in terms of um kind of non-binary and gender fluidity is already beginning to think about this is to move away from the like the need to talk about things being he or she so the gender definition of stuff. So she says that we could change our relationship with species if we didn't call, like when we talk about other species, we always call them it, right? Like bird species, we don't talk about them as being kin. We talk about them in an, in an other term. And I find this really interesting because within the kind of queer community, there is a lot of discussion around pronouns and moving to a they, them rather than making anybody he or she everybody is just they and in her book she takes that idea of they and says why don't we just why don't we just send that out to all species why are not they just our kin rather than them being something other and there's a really fantastic chapter where she then decides to come up with another term so, so instead of saying it the, the bird is um it is a species she comes up with this this um, this kind of um, hybrid word, which I think is Z. I can't quite remember what it is, um, but it's a really nice idea, and I think there's something in it that we need a new language. It's time to kind of progress our language so that we can accept 
radical nurturing for other kin. It's funny, you know, what 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 that made me think. I was thinking, well, obviously she's speaking from an indigenous worldview, and 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 that's nothing new with you know people and 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 um. Yeah, there's this amazing thing where she talks about her own language, which is sort of almost dying out because of how her people have been treated historically. So there are very few people who speak her language fluently. But it doesn't have a, it has this, like, because it, again, it has these like animistic beliefs and that's the basis of it. Verbs, adjectives and verbs and pronouns are all treated really differently. So that like, and she does this wonderful explanation of how sentences are put together. And she's like, do you understand if you have this shift in how a sentence is put together, you can no longer see the river as something that you can, the river has agency in the sentence. Therefore it, it has agency in your life. It is not something you can do something to. And it's an amazing, an amazing chapter. It's just mind blowing. And in the, in the, in the Australian, um, Aboriginal thing, which again I know, just sketchy little bits about, but I know like if if you if you um, if you're um, born in a certain place, you have a certain dreaming that relates to a certain animal, and so you and all the other people that have that dreaming, you are the you know the kangaroo people or whatever, and it's not a tribe; it's within the tribe, and people in other tribes would have the same one. But that's 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 profound sort of sense of kinship that they would have towards these um, things. And I, I think it's just the, the point for me is that that's, that is basic to being human. It's just that we've lost some of these things that are absolutely basic that, 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 that we, we experience um, other, other species and things like mountains and fields and valleys and so on as kin because we just have an experience of the world that, that is social. You know, the whole thing is social, not just between people. But it's funny to say about language, because another thing that they made me think when you were talking um, about pronouns, in Cornwall, they still have uh, their kind of, they've kind of lost their language, but they've got kind of colloquialisms. And um, there's, there's this story that goes around about the guy that came and showed my father-in-law how to... It was something to do with a door handle that was, I think it was one of these windows that with these patio doors or something. Mm. And, and my father-in-law had not uh, worked out how to use it. So this guy just came around and showed him how to use it. And he kept going, he talked like this. He goes, she'd be coming around like that and she'd be going up like that. And then him to be referring to the key. It's lovely that, that some people... Um, Somehow or another, there's, that's almost animus towards, you know. Yes. Anyway. Um, so interesting. So, like, in spite of all this, like, horror of what's happening in the world, there are these, like, like these windows of joy, just yeah. like that, you know, with people really trying to find new solutions and, and, like, bravely going ahead despite everybody else saying, you cannot be this, you cannot be that. Going, well, you know what, I want to. I'm going to give it a go. I love people who are prepared against all odds to give it a go to be something that is more like i don't know for want of a better word more authentic to who they feel they are inside for me it's all about um that somehow or another we can become grounded again you know because we we cut adrift and it's 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 really dangerous you know we are we're being sort of hurled around in a, in a hurricane you know with with no way of 
holding on to anything, you know. Um, but at the same time, I feel there's, uh, there's a space in which tentative little roots are, are beginning to bud and, and, and potentially go down, you know. So that's what I want to kind of, yeah, engage with or yeah. promote or, I don't know, just, just that's, I wanted to get involved in that, I guess would be a better way to put it, yeah. A hundred percent, really, me too. And and when you find these moments, they are so, they are really sustaining, actually. They're like, good, I'm not alone. <laughs> there are others. <laughs> Let us keep it this work, then. Yeah. So thank you for listening to this week's Worldwide podcast. And, um, you know, wherever you are in the world, I would suggest... Um, encourage you to step outside and go and look at the wild plants that are growing near where you are. And even if you did get no further than that, just just get out and, and look and, and be curious. If you don't already have uh, a repertoire of, of um, wild plants that you eat, just go out there and, and just look and acknowledge the fact that there's going to be stuff that you're looking at that you can eat. And then maybe just see what you can find online um, with regard to uh, just basic plant identification guides uh, and just start thinking about what well, could you could you identify one or some of these plants but there's really obvious things that grow all over the world there's things like chickweed so you know have a look at that online see what it looks like key identification features to stop you eating something toxic um, with chickweed is it has white hairs down the edge of one side of the stem and the stem is round so bear that in mind uh, nettles are something which mentioned quite a few times on the podcast but you can identify them by the fact they sting you and they're really good at the moment if you're in in sort of temperate zones nettles are great just chopped and added to anything as a green like you would spinach for example um and then dandelions they're just great in a salad chopped up with some uh, beetroot maybe a bit of onion and a nice dressing a simple simple salad that um, anyone could make so yeah i'm i'm hoping to be producing a, a bit more regular much briefer content to, to take you through some more plants and things that you can do close to your homestead in the next few weeks okay then that's it and thanks for listening to this week's world wild podcast
don't know Fire they don't know Air they don't know Water they don't know And the treasures of the field Are lost to their sight The stars of the heavens are no signs to them at night The calling of the dove Stirs nothing within them They see no journeys in these signs And so cannot begin them they don't know trees they don't know and the wind is blowing through and the trees that shake say Through you the silence breaks. Oh, dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light. On the shadowlands, let it fall. Oh, dwellers in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light On the shadowlands let it fall